7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast, 3 p.m. in London, New South Wales, it is 12 midnight, and here in Malaysia, it's 1981. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> I am, however, wearing my bear shirt tonight. Let me see. That's my bear shirt. Just, what the hell? Hey, hi, welcome. Thank you for joining. Nice to see you wherever you may be. We're live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch.tv. And thank you very much for liking, subscribing, sharing, whatever it is. And, uh, of course, uh, we are also a podcast. So, welcome to our podcast listeners on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, all the podcast channels. Thank you for listening and thanks for subscribing. Please do hit that subscribe button, both on YouTube and on any of the podcasts, wherever you may be listening. Very important. It helps me a lot. And uh, thanks for that. Also, if you want to uh, help the program out, you can go over to my Patreon. Uh, just search Jay Sheldon, all one word, J-A-Y-S-H-E-L-D-O-N, uh, patreon.com. And uh, you can support me there. Got some cool deals. You're going to check it out. And one last little pitch, and that is for Miko Merch. Yeah, we've got merch. Uh, all the merchandise for I'm Not Wearing Pants has now been Miko'd. Uh, she might be here. She's upstairs tonight in the room next to our studio. So she she might wander in here later. If she does, I'll jump her in on the uh, on the stream. Um, but yeah, go to us, um, either twitch.tv or streamlabs.com. Jay Sheldon No Pants slash merch. And you can find all this cool uh, Miko merch over there and uh, order, oh, order everything. Why not? Just buy one of everything. <laughs> all right. So Patreon and uh, Miko merch, check those out. Um, wow. We had uh, a holiday today. It is Agong's birthday, the king of Malaysia. Um it's his birthday today, so everybody gets a holiday. But since we're all pretty much under house arrest, every day is like a holiday. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Um, people were asking, in fact, got a couple of emails about Miko because she has not been doing very well. She was very ill, not eating for like four days. Um, she's... 80% recovered. For the first time tonight, she ate a full dinner, and uh, so she is doing well. So that's good news. She's got a lot more energy. She was uh, chasing her friend, the cat that comes, the Siamese cat that comes through the yard. Um, she's trying to make friends, but she's too hyper, and the cat isn't putting up with it. But this cat is cool. The other ones run the minute they see her. But this Siamese cat is like, he got attitude. It's like, yeah, whatever. He's so chill. And if Miko gets too close, because Miko doesn't understand, you know, cat mentality. He's a, she's a Shiba Inu and wants to play. And so she's all hyper. And the cat's like, dude, chill. And every now and then Miko will get a little too close for comfort and the cat will kind of give him a snarl or a swipe. Hasn't hit him yet, but one day... Uh, so yeah, Miko, the other day, actually, the cat and Miko were kind of laying down next to each other, just chilling. So they're warming up to each other slowly. It's not a stray cat because it's got a collar and a bell on, but it wanders around and it loves wandering in our yard for some reason, which is okay. It doesn't poop in the yard. That's usually the problem with strays. But, um, this guy just comes in, hangs out. And my Japanese garden or underneath my car in the front yard. And yeah, Miko uh, is trying desperately to get him to play or at least make friends. But Miko's version of making friends is, <laughs> come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And the cat's like, whatever, dude. <laughs> so, 
Oh, man. Yeah, it's Monday. T-G-I-M. <laughs> Not. Um, everything else going well, actually. No, uh, no big upsets, no big deals. Had a pretty good weekend. Um, we did have... Uh, lots of adventures with Miko, as we told you about on our Saturday night stream. But um, for the most part, it's been an adventure once again. We're still locked down. I don't know until when, but everybody assumes they'll just extend it anyway. Our, uh, our numbers of infected are going down. It's still in the thousands and people are still going, ooh, ah, ooh, but, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into that crap. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. We've got a bunch of stuff to share tonight. Um, I found a whole lot of uh, stuff I curia uh, curated from the from the net, and uh, some cool stuff, some weird, some make you think, some aw. And also coming up, I want to give a plug to a colleague of mine, Amir, and I'll tell you about that at the end of all my uh, my little. Facebook reviewy kind of things that are going on tonight. Um, let's, uh, oh, and a new book, a new book. We start a new book. We finished Peter Pan last night or Saturday night in our last stream. Um, oh, man, what a great ending. Very cool. But tonight, uh, by popular request, we start The Little Prince. And that is going to be very cool. Cannot wait for that. That's coming up. Chapter one, maybe even chapter two. Stephen Pickert, thank you for the like. Hey, good to see you, Stephen. Thank you. And thank you for what you post on Facebook. You are a patriot, and I really, really enjoy what, what you put up there. Thank you again for that. It, it means a lot. Um, so, yeah, we've got a new book, The Little Prince, tonight. That will be coming up. Uh, by the way, somebody, uh, Darren, suggested, uh, suggested Neil Gaiman. Uh, sadly, none of Neil Gaiman's stuff is in the public domain. It's all copyrighted, and I can't read his stuff. I did look at his stuff, and it's cool. very cool. I would love to read Neil Gaiman here, but um, sadly, we can't do that. Uh, like I said, I can't do copyright stuff. It's got to be stuff that is in the uh, public domain. So... Having said that, sorry, but uh, thank you for the suggestion. I'm going to check out some of his stuff because it's very interesting reading. Um, all right, let's move on to our uh, our usual little uh, review stuff here. Check this out. You might have seen one of these before, but strangely enough, not a lot of people have. I've seen them in the zoo, but I've never seen them in the wild I'm not sure. We're talking about peacocks, by the way, for those in the podcast only listening to the audio. Uh, sadly, <laughs> you're going to have to check out our live stream or our video on YouTube or on Rumble.com. I'm not wearing pants as the show, the channel. Please subscribe on Rumble, Rumble.com. Free account. Sign up there. It's free. And subscribe to uh, the I'm Not Wearing Pants channel. Just search it. You'll find it guaranteed. So you can see the visual aspect of our show, which is mainly what we do Monday, Wednesday, and Saturdays live on Twitch.tv, YouTube, and Facebook. But our podcast, of course, the audio portion that we stripe out and stick up there online uh, is available. But if you're listening on the podcast and you want to see the visuals, check out rumble.com. I'm not wearing pants. Uh, so check this out. Look at this. This is a, oh man, I got to turn this down. It's very loud. Okay. This is a peacock who is ruffling up. Look at that. Look at that. Now watch when he kind of shakes these Shake his tail feathers. <laughs> Look at that. It just, it blows up. I assume this is how they attract mates. But this is incredible. Look at, look at the size of that. There's the bird. This thing is like ten times as big as the bird is. That is an impressive peacock. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, it's just like a sort of a nothing thing. But when I saw that, I thought, oh, man, I got to share that. I got to stick that out there for people because it's very cool. Very, very cool. Um, all right. 
Oh, I didn't have multi-stream on. I'm sorry, if anybody said anything on the stream, I didn't see it because I had my chat uh, window in, in the wrong place. So repeat yourself or I'll Oh, Stephen, love listening to you, Jay. I'm in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. Growing up, for whatever reason, I never thought we would be this far apart. Keep up your fine work. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much. Wow. Uh, Old Orchard Beach, Maine. I remember um, as teenagers, my my gang in West Cornwall. Ooh, the West Cornwall gang. Not exactly the Bronx uh, or Brooklyn. Um, we used to go to a place in Maine once every summer for like a week. We'd stock up on beer and maybe some pot and we would uh, all jump in the cars and we would drive to, oh, York Beach. That's what it was. When it just popped in my head. York Beach, Maine was a beautiful place. Absolutely amazing. We would rent a cabin and we'd all kind of rough it and hang out in York Beach, Maine. It was, uh, what a memory. What a great, great time that was. Back in my teenage years, uh, Tony Locke, Mike Watts, Lloyd Golden, Al DeGrenia, Guy Washburn, um, all the gang. I, I probably missed somebody. There were more, but I can't remember. Um, uh, Chris Marola, um, we would all, all, mostly all go up to York Beach, Maine. And it was, what a time. What a fantastic time. I, I used to have pictures, actual film pictures that we took. I, I have no idea what happened to them. I think they're gone. But um, yeah, You're, I don't know how far away Old Orchard Beach is from York Beach. But uh, we spent uh, many summers. In fact, <laughs> we once took off on a Saturday night not for York Beach, but for, but for Boston. As I told you, if you don't know, uh, where I grew up in Cornwall, Connecticut, it's just 200 miles in either direction to Boston or to New York City. So it was midnight and we were hanging out and one of my friends went to Emerson, Emerson College in Boston. He said, I know Boston like the back of my hand. Come on, we'll go to Boston. So we thought, what the hell? Let's go to Boston. So it's midnight, and he drove a Subaru Brat. I don't know if many of you would remember what a Subaru Brat is. Um, let me see if I can find a picture of a Subaru Brat. Yep, there it is. Whoop, there it is. Hold on, I got to bring this up. There you go. That is what a brat, a Subaru brat looked like. It was this little tiny mini pickup truck. And this, it's hard to tell the size because there's no people in these pictures. But um, in the back, I don't know if you can see there, there's two jump seats facing backwards in the back of the brat. There you go. There's one. Okay, so you got two jump seats. I don't even think there were seat belts. I don't remember, but probably not. Uh, I don't remember when Subaru stopped selling the Brat, but that was a cool little utility vehicle. If you've never seen a Brat, you got to check. I, I'm sure they don't make them. I don't think that Subaru even makes a pickup truck anymore. But there was there's only room for two people. It's not a bench seat in the front. So there's two seats in the front, two seats in the back, and maybe somebody wants to ride back here in the bed. But um, I rode to, there was no room. It was my friend, and I forget who else was with us. And then I volunteered to ride in the back at midnight to Boston in the back of a brat like that. I was right here. Yeah. I don't think there were seatbelts the more I think about it. But that was insane. So my friend, I'll wrap this up quick. <laughs> my friend who says, hey, I know Boston, no problem. I went to school there. It was like, you know, 20 years ago. But he, we drive into Boston and he is lost. I mean, lost. 
has no idea where he's going. Now, if you know anything about Boston, I don't know if it still exists, probably, but there was a place in Boston called the Combat Zone. That was a no-go. And certainly a couple of country local yokels from Cornwall, Connecticut have no business being in the combat zone in Boston at two o'clock in the morning. But that's where we wound up because he didn't know Boston as well as he thought he did. And he got completely lost and we wound up right in the middle of the combat zone. Now, let me tell you, the combat zone back then, this was the 80s, early 80s probably. Yeah, early 80s, was hookers and drug dealers. And that was pretty much the whole population of the combat zone, hookers and drug dealers. And there we were, and there I am in this brat exposed to gunfire or whatever. So I'm knocking on the back window going, Rick, Rick, get us out of here. Eventually, I mean, nothing happened. We actually got out. We escaped the combat zone. But um, man, I'm telling you, that was a an adventure. That was an adventure. I, don't, I mean, we didn't even do anything when we got there. We just hung out and then we came back home. Um, as far as I recall, we didn't really do much of anything, so. Ah, coffee time. Oh, speaking of which, here's another one I want to share with you. This is cool. I just drank a, a sip of coffee, if you didn't hear me. <coughs> this is so cool. Co now, I found this today, and I thought, you know, with the kind of coffee that I drink, I, uh, I got to know about this. Coffee was so important in Turkish culture that under 15th century law, a woman had the freedom to divorce her husband if he did not provide her with enough coffee. Yes, there you go. That's when laws had teeth. That's back when laws meant something. You don't provide enough coffee, I'm divorcing you. <laughs> what a great idea. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, on to Carl Sagan, who, who spoke these words. And when I saw them, I thought, especially in the day and age we live in today, between politicians and morons like Dr. Fauci and uh, all the fools that think they run things when they're actually supposed to be working for us. One of the saddest lessons of history is this. This is from Carl Sagan. If we've been bamboozled long enough, you don't know what bamboozled means. It means basically fooled, had the wool pulled over our eyes. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you can almost never get it back. Words to remember. Carl Sagan from The Demon Haunted World. Very nice quote from Mr. Sagan. I like that. All right. What else have we got going on here? Oh, <laughs> oh man. I didn't put this in the headline tonight, but I got to share it because it's just that cool. <laughs> Playground equipment that nearly killed your grandparents. Yeah. Now that's some playground equipment. This is the kind of stuff... I remember playing on. Look at that. Look at that monstrosity. Grab on for dear life. And, it, you know, it probably was rusted. This was probably steel. Steel pipes. Swung around on top of whatever that is. Nice. You fall off of that thing, you're going to go for a spin. <laughs> 
with the equipment that made a mockery of the universal conditions of gravity and physics, the schoolyards of the early 20th century were a treacherous labyrinth of concussion and contusions. This, by the way, is from mentalfloss.com. Grandpa always said he was tough, but even if you don't believe he walked eight miles uphill in the snow to school every day, these vintage playground devices were truly perilous. This is the barrel of fun. It's pretty much a probably cast iron pipe stuck in the ground with a big barrel that rotates stuck right in the middle of it. This unique affair, since its introduction a few seasons ago, has become quite popular, and no playground is complete without it. <laughs> the barrel of fun. Yeah, that. Oh, there you go. You see his little illustrations here. Oh yeah. Oh, there's a good one. Hmm. Imagine falling off of that onto what was probably concrete below. <laughs> a mechanical greased pig. It was from 1922. Anchored into a see a slab of concrete. There you go. Fall off of that sucker. Here's another one. The log swing. This is pretty much just like a teeter-totter, but it's suspended in the air between what looks like a bunch of, I don't know, iron pipes again. The log swing. Let's see what it says. A playground contraption built by Everywhere Manufacturing. Like a teeter-totter, except it had the ability to leap forward or backward and whack its unsuspecting victims. (laughs) <laughs> overloaded the beam by up to 14 kids deep. Oh, man. Sweet. Gi- oh, look at this. Giant Strides. Giant Strides are the seven-league beer, or boot, seven-league boot of the playground. Yeah, we get everybody on that sucker swinging around. Oh, these are rope ladders attached. Oh, that's good. Mmm, very nice. The seven-league boot of 1930s playgrounds, kids were meant to latch onto one of the lines of rope to the spinning wheel a contraption on top of the pole. They'd run around the pole, leaping and swinging through the air. If swingers managed to all work together, it was probably a lot of fun. But no doubt, a fair amount of collisions probably happened. <laughs> Uh, what? The teeter-totter ladder? Oh, man, are you kidding me? Look at this. There's a an iron pipe buried in the ground again, and like a, a looks like a goal for a, foot, a football pitch. And then attached to it in two places is are two ladders, but they're on teeter-totters. They, they swing back and forth. You have to be kidding me. This would either launch you in the air like a rocket or slam you on the ground. Nice. Monkey bars and seesaws both on their way out of most playgrounds in America because, you know, everybody gets a participation trophy and nobody can get hurt because everybody will get sued. But back in the day, playground proprietors combined both into one. The teeter ladder. Oh, man. Now that thing and a 10-year-old or two looks like absolute trouble. Racer slides. Yes, racer slides. Check it out. Two huge slides. And I assume the deal is some sort of competition to get up the stairs and down the slides at the same time. Uh, they've got today's playgrounds have lumpy plastic short barreled slides, but in as late as the 1990s, kids could climb a 30 foot metal slide and really get some speed, not to mention some burns as they speed along in the sun roasted metal. Uh, burns weren't the issue though, the real problem was the dizzying climb up. In 1978, a young boy in Chicago severely injured in a fall after slipping through the railing on top of this 12-foot slide. And families sued the park district 12 feet up in the air, that thing, in a 30-foot slide. 
Anyway, they sued and they won, and the park took out all the slides. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and here's another one. <laughs> Look at this. It's a ladder. What is this thing called? The gymnas gymnasium outfit. How tall is that? It looks huge. There's a rope attached here. There's a ladder on one side. Looks like another rope of some kind there. And these, what do they call those in the Olympic? The, the, the rings that are suspended rings or something? Narragansett Machine Company, 1922 gymnasium outfit. Encouraged yump, oh my God. Encouraged youngsters to climb to an apex of over 14 feet in the air. If Isaac Newton had been around to do some quick gravitational calculations, he would have discovered that kids falling from the top would be doing about 20 miles an hour when they hit the pavement below. <laughs> kids were twice as likely to sustain injuries if the drop is over five feet. Today's medical personnel would categorize a plunge from the top of this piece of equipment as a major fall. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> Portable merry-go-round. All right, we all know merry-go-rounds, and these things are crazy. They, But this one, oh, it's got like a box to sit on. So, uh, yeah, two words, centrifugal force. When this thing gets spinning, look out. This was a 1,500-pound oak monster that all but guaranteed splinters. It was rated to hold up to 40 kids or five tons. Oh my, <laughs> unbelievable. The Fire Chief Pyramid Climbing Structure. Very nice, it's 18 feet tall, 18 feet. 178 bucks back in whatever year this was. Lawyers and regulators have all but killed the traditional jungle gym. Um, the real purge started back in 1988 when a boy in Washington fell and was badly injured. He was awarded, his family was awarded $15 million because he fell off a jungle gym. Oh, man. This was from 1940. Look, $178 in 1940s money is a lot of money. Dang. Of course, the towns paid for these, I assume, and installed them. And uh, here's another one. Looks kind of like that. Uh, Fun-filled giant strides. Permanently lubricated. Ooh. <laughs> Ball-bearing extended head type. And the improved ocean wave. Actually, you know what? At Dessa Park City, in their park there, where we take Miko, or we used to, they've got kind of a modern version of this thing. What back in the day was called the ocean wave. Um, yeah, there is a version of this thing up at the Desert Park City Park. Rather cool. Okay, one more. The poised safety swing. Check this out. You climb up the ladder, you grab on, and much like a trapeze artist, or a, uh, is it trapeze? Yeah, flying trapeze. Swing out and jump, what, into the water? Yes, it's a diving outfit. So you jump up, you, you climb up here, you get on the seat of what looks like a big swing, you swing out and you jump off into the water. What if you miss? You'd be doing like a thousand miles an hour. It's insane. Everwhere's jaw-dropping contraption avoids all the anguish of smashing to earth by being set up in a pool, lakefront, or at the beach. Okay, in a lake, maybe I could see because there's little chance you're going to overshoot. But in a pool, you could easily overshoot the edge. 1930s. According to the catalog, the bather released the swing with a foot pedal and swooped along the waves, pa waves pausing at the top of the arch before being hurled forward. Less adventurous riders may stay on until the old cat dies, according to the ad copy. The seat was retrieved by the next hardy soul with the help of a rope that he'd pull up and off you'd go. This is insane. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is really...
honest to God. The stuff we used to get away with, it's mainly back in my day. <laughs> Incredible. All right. Um, I promised you German insults, and we've got those. I don't think my friend Alex is probably watching. He's an occasional viewer to the stream, but he is a, a big advocate of the German language. And um, I saw this, and I thought I would share it with you. I'm sure he will catch up later with this. It is 30 hilarious German insults that you should start to use immediately. Okay? You, you need to start using these insults. Honestly, with the German language, even if you don't understand it, whatever you said in German, if you were trying to insult somebody, probably would wind up sounding insulting even if it wasn't. Okay. My German, by the way, is horrible. I'm purely guessing on how to say these words. But um, if you've had your fill of German terms of endearment and want to learn how to insult somebody instead, look no further. Some of these insults, this, by the way, also mentalfloss.com. They're pretty devastating. So um, here are the uh, best German insults. I'm not going to do all of them. I'll just do a few. Uh, if you want to look at all 30 of them, you can go to mentalfloss.com. An arsch... Geig. Arschgeig? Someone who doesn't perform a task very well can be called a butt violin. <laughs> Apparently, that's what Arschgeig means. A butt violin. Nice! Hey, Arschgeig, get off there! Uh, Bananenbeige. Bananenbeige? Someone who's engaged in a pointless task can't concentrate, or has no direction in life. I don't know who we might be talking about here, but you would call them a Bananenbeige. There you go. Um, oh, we all know one of these people. An Urbenzale. Oh, no, it's Urbsenzale. Urbsenzale. A pea counter is a nitpicker who obsesses over every little detail. Similarly, you could call an overly pedantic person who always plays by the rules an Ammeinzentaitauvira, ant tattooist. <laughs> an ant tattooist! I love that! <laughs> so an Erbsenzale a pea counter is a nitpicker and an oh man i'm going to butcher this again amitsintatovira ant tattooist what a great one ah oh, man these crazy german people um lustmolch it literally means pleasure newt which is what you'd call someone who was sex crazed a lustmolch <laughs> oh Arsch mit Ohren, but with ears. Arsch mit Ohren, or simply put, a complete idiot. Nice. <laughs> Evolutionsbremse, an evolutionary break, an unintelligent person whose very existence on Earth hinders the advancement of the human species, so to speak. And evolution's primes. <laughs> oh, man. These are great. Einzeller. You Einzeller? The word means a single-celled organism. You're an Einzeller. <laughs> oh, man. Hosenscheiser? Trouser poopers. Cowards, in other words. Uh... Donbrett borer, a driller of thin planks, someone who takes the easy way out or just does absolutely the bare minimum. A Donbrett borer. Okay, one more, number 10. There's 30 of these, so if you want, go to mendelfloss.com, check them all out. <laughs> Spargeltausen. Spargeltausen. The imaginative insult translates to asparagus Tarzan and describes someone who is thin 
and gangly. I know a few spoggle thousands. Uh, I, just because I saw it, I'll add this one. Kotzbrocken. Kotzbrocken is a lump of puke. There you go. Now, those are some insults. That is cool. We love that. Check it out. It's um, mentalfloss.com if you want to see all. Like I said, there's, a, there's like 30 of them. Okay. Uh, we got uh, one or two more here, and then we'll get on to the little prince. Um, uh, we, we did highlight this in our, in our um, thumbnail for the show, and that was um, strange predictions for the 21st century. These are the things that was predicted a long time ago for the time that we're living in right now. So let's take a look at some of these and see how many may or may not be uh, have come true. Nikola Tesla, you know, the inventor who had most of his stuff either stolen or destroyed. Uh, by the 21st century, he thought that people would no longer be drinking Coffee. Mmm. Oh, that's good coffee. In 1935, in an article in Liberty Magazine, Tesla predicted it simply wouldn't be cool to poison our systems with what he considered to be harmful stimulants like caffeine and nicotine. Well, nicotine has certainly made the bad news section of everybody's book, but caffeine, not so much. He thought alcohol, on the other hand, would withstand the test of time. Tesla called it an elixir of life. Oh, we're liking this Nikola Tesla guy even more. <laughs> All right, news headlines wouldn't focus on crime or politics. Well, Tesla may have been way off about the coffee, but he also misjudged what we'd consider headlining news in the 21st century, uh, predicted that newspapers would, quote, give a mere stick in the back pages to accounts of crime or political controversies. He believed the front pages would mostly cover scientific hypotheses. Well, <laughs> maybe. Uh, meat would be less common. In the 1952 issue of Galaxy magazine, Science fiction author Robert Heinlein po uh, po uh, posited that a fish and yeast would be our main source of protein, and that beef would be a luxury. I'll tell you what, at the prices today, it almost is. Uh, Isaac Asimov took it even further. In 64, he imagined that the 2014 World's Fair would feature an algae bar with mock turkey and pseudo-steak. His quote, it won't be bad at all if you can dig up those premium prices. So, it seems the impossible burger wasn't exactly impossible to figure out, but it doesn't contain algae. Uh, fruits and veggies would be huge, was another prediction that was made. In uh, 1900, John Watkins wrote in the Ladies' Home Journal that we would sink our teeth into raspberries, strawberries, and blueberries as large as apples, and peas and beans would be as big as beets. In 1956, the independent George Service dreamed up a farm from the year 2000 where hydrogen bombs caused the soil to produce three-foot-long carrots, four-foot-wide turnips, and basketball-sized tomatoes. Maybe in, uh, like, Chernobyl, something like that, they uh, they might very well have... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, some letters in the English language they predicted in the 21st century would be eliminated. Watkins Jr. also believed we would get rid of the letters C, X, and Q. Instead, spelling would be based on sound alone. It would be phonetic. So those letters would presumably be replaced by S's and K's. Now, as bizarre as that might seem, Benjamin Franklin and Noah Webster actually advocated back in the 18th and 19th centuries for spelling reform. And just six years after Watkins published his 21st century predictions, steel magnet Andrew Carnegie created the Simplified Spelling Board to revamp the English language. 
Then, uh, despite President Theodore Roosevelt's best efforts, English spelling really remains pretty much unchanged today. But that was a prediction that the letters CX and Q would be uh, would be gone. Very cool. We'd be able to make it rain. In 1910, the Cedar Rapids Evening Gazette published an article that predicted people by this time in the 21st century would be able to make it rain, uh, which we actually kind of do with cloud seeding. We, we sort of. Um, silver iodide particles get injected into clouds and water collects and forms precipitation. Uh, whether or not it's effective is kind of debated, but it's a far cry from what futurists thought we would be doing. They also thought we would... Um... <laughs> I'll get to you in a minute, Tony. <laughs> we thought we would eliminate hurricanes. They thought it would be a non-issue that once we spotted one, we would ignite a large oil fire across the water and draw air from the surrounding region, which would put an end somehow to the hurricane. We believed He believed we would be diverting storms and putting an end to flight delays, <laughs> if it were not just that simple. Tony, Tony Pietra says, number three and four in 2022, Soylent Green is people. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Good to have you along, Tony. Thanks. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen the film Soil and Green, you really must see that. Uh, we would build machines to generate weather. In 1900, a German chocolate company, Theodor Hildebrand und Zun, released a series of illustrated cards with its predictions for our time now. One of them depicted a good weather machine. It simply blew the storm back out over the ocean. Uh, in that same year, 1900, the Globe, the Boston Globe, suggested we'd be able to generate a nice easterly breeze whenever it got too hot outside. People would live underground and underwater. Asimov did not think we would be able to conquer the elements, but he did think we'd be doing a better job of avoiding them. He envisioned vast underground cities with advanced light technology, which could mimic outdoor ambience, and the Earth's surface would all be used for agriculture, grazing grounds, parks, and things. He was a bit off the mark, but an underground park dubbed the Low Line is supposedly set to debut in New York at some point. So we could be well on our way to living underground. And we would ride on fish for sport. What? Predictions about 21st century water sports went beyond the traditional sailing, surfing, and swimming. In 1899 and 1910, Jean-Marc Cotet and his contemporaries produced almost a hundred fanciful illustrations of the year 2000. And on one, deep sea divers were riding giant seahorses. Another has a whale pulling a bus full of people through the sea. Another one with a crowd of onlookers cheering as jockeys race by on the backs of enormous fish. Um, sadly, we're not spending all our free time underwater. But uh, yeah, and we would travel in unusual flying machines. In 1903, the Wright brothers' first famous flight happened. Um, and just around that time, uh, there were French illustrations uh, big on air travel. They showed about every type of aircraft you could imagine. There's one that looks like a hot air balloon basket attached to a helicopter propeller. Another one, just a ship attached to two Zeppelin-like uh, aircrafts. Um, mm, we didn't quite make that, but here's one we're almost there. We'd all have personal airplanes. Uh, in 1930, a Britain's former Lord Chancellor and a close friend of Winston Churchill published a book called The World in 2030 A.D. Strangely enough, we're, what, nine years away from that? Eight and a half? He imagined each person would own a small airplane for weekend trips. Skiing parties in Greenland will be made up in London clubs on Saturday mornings and translated into action before that evening. Imagine that.
Very cool. Uh, again, mentalfloss.com if you want to see the whole list. There's a ton of them there. That's very wild. These are actual predictions that were made. All right. We're going to move on to our book, The Little Prince. We start a brand new book tonight. I'm so excited about this because The Little Prince is one of my favorites. It is a great book. But before we do that, we always remind you, uh, we thank you for listening on our podcast all across iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, all the different places you can find your podcast. We thank you for that. Please do subscribe. That helps us a lot. And also rumble.com. You can see the video version of our show. You can see all the visuals of what we talk about here on the podcast and the stream. It's a replay of our streams. All 70 episodes are up. And as of later on today, 71. Tonight's show will be on. But um, I always like to encourage people who are starting streams or starting mm, vlogs, podcasts of one kind or another. Um, and a colleague of mine, Amir, he is an amazing 3D artist. Uh, he works with me at uh, Studio Voxel. And he has uh, had a YouTube channel for a while. Uh, but he's kind of done a reset, and he is going to begin to uh, put regular content out there. And I want to do all I can to help uh, anybody who wants to create content and help to publicize what they do. So this is, I hope he doesn't mind, it's a public uh, channel, so it's out there. You can find it. If you, if you wouldn't mind, a big ask for my audience, go to uh, YouTube and search Amir Hamza. Now, I could give you the link, but it's hard to put a link in the chat or up here or something. So just do me this favor. You go to YouTube and you search Amir, M-A-M-I-R, Hamza, H-A-M-Z-A-H. Very cool guy and incredible 3D artist talent. Some of his work you'll see he's posted up there. But he's just posted a brand new video, His Story and a Reset. And we wish him all the best and uh, a, a lot of success. And uh, good job. Good job, Amir. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, good luck with your, uh, with your postings. Uh, yeah, subscribe to uh, Amir's channel. It would mean a lot. And uh, yeah, cool. Thank you. All right, guys. It is time to move on into a new book by request. We, uh, we took a vote, and the votes were overwhelmingly in favor of Antoine Saint-Exupéry, The Little Prince. I'm sure I pronounced the author's name wrong. <laughs> but we're going to do it anyway. It's The Little Prince. We begin it tonight. It's uh, chapter one. We're going to start with the introduction. And before we do that, we just want to thank the Gutenberg Project. This is where we get all of our books. They are in the public domain. They're copyright free. And you can download them in all kinds of formats, Word doc, PDFs, uh, text files, ebooks. In some, in a lot of cases, you can get ebooks there. Uh, they're all free. You can contribute, if you like, to the Gutenberg Project. It's gutenberg.org. Um, check it out. Great place. And that is where all of our books come from. We thank them very much for that. The Little Prince to Leon Worth. The introduction. I ask the indulgence of the children who may read this book for dedicating it to a grown-up. I have serious reasons. He is the best friend I have in this world. I have another reason. This grown-up understands everything, even books about children. I have a third reason. He lives in France, where he is hungry and cold. He needs cheering up. If all these reasons are not enough, I will dedicate the book to the child from whom this grown-up grew. All grown-ups were once children although few of them remember it. And so I correct my dedication to Leon Worth when he was a little boy. Chapter 1. We are introduced to the narrator, a pilot, and his ideas about growing up, about grown-ups. Once, when I was six years old, 
I saw a magnificent picture in a book called True Stories from Nature about the primeval forest. It was a picture of a boa constrictor in the act of swallowing an animal. Here's a copy of the drawing. In the book, it said, boa constrictors swallow their prey whole without chewing it. After that, they're not able to move and they sleep through the six months they need for digestion. I pondered deeply then over the adventures of the jungle and after some work with a colored pencil, I succeeded in making my first drawing. My drawing number one looked like this. I showed my masterpiece to the grown-ups and asked them whether the drawing frightened them. But they answered, frightened? Why should anyone be frightened of a hat? My drawing was not a picture of a hat. It was a picture of a boa constrictor digesting an elephant. But since the grown-ups were not able to understand it, I made another drawing. I drew the inside of the boa constrictor so that the grown-ups could see it clearly. They always need to have things explained. My number two drawing looked like this. The grown-ups' response this time was to advise me to lay aside my drawings of boa constrictors, whether from the inside or the outside, and devote myself instead to geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. That is why, at the age of six, I gave up what might have been a magnificent career as a painter. I had been disheartened by the failure of my drawing number one and my drawing number two. Grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, and it is tiresome for children to always and forever be explaining things to them. So then I chose another profession and learned to pilot airplanes. I have flown a little over all parts of the world, and it is true that geography has been very useful to me. At a glance, I can distinguish China from Arizona. If one gets lost in the night, such knowledge is valuable. In the course of this life, I've had a great many encounters with a great many people who've been concerned with matters of consequence. I've lived a great deal among grown-ups. I've seen them intimately, close at hand, and that hasn't much improved my opinion of them. Whenever I met one of them who seemed to be all clear-sided, I tried the experiment of showing him my drawing number one, which I have always kept. I would try to find out, so if this person of true understanding, but whoever it was, he or she would always say, that is a hat. Then... I would never talk to that person about boa constrictors or primeval forests or stars. I would bring myself down to his level. I would talk to him about bridge, golf, politics, neckties. And the grown-ups would be greatly pleased to have met such a sensible man. Chapter 2 The Narrator Crashes in the Desert and makes the acquaintance of the little prince. So I lived my life alone, without anyone that I could really talk to, until I had an accident with my plane in the desert of Sahara six years ago. Something was broken in my engine, and as I had with me neither a mechanic nor any passengers, I set myself to attempt the difficult repairs all alone. It was a question of life or death for me. I had scarcely enough drinking water to last a week. The first night, then, I went to sleep in the sand a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Thus you can imagine my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. It said, If you please, 
Draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. I jumped to my feet, completely thunderstruck. I blinked my eyes hard, and I looked carefully all around me. And I saw a most extraordinary small person who stood there examining me with great seriousness. Here you may see the best portrait that later I was able to make of him, but my drawing is certainly very much less charming than its model. That, however, is not my fault. The grown-ups discouraged me in the painter's career when I was six years old, and I never learned to draw anything except boas from the inside and boas from the outside. Now, I stared at this sudden apparition with my eyes fairly starting out of my head in astonishment. Remember, I had crashed in the desert a thousand miles from any inhabited region, and yet my little man seemed neither to be straying uncertainly among the sands, nor to be fainting from fatigue or hunger or thirst or fear. Nothing about him gave any suggestion of a child lost in the middle of a desert, a thousand miles from any human habitation. When at last I was able to speak, I said to him, But what are you doing here? And the answer he repeated very slowly, as if he were speaking of a matter of great consequence. If you please... Draw me a sheep. When a mystery is too overpowering, one dare not disobey. Absurd as it might seem to me, a thousand miles from any human habitation and in danger of death, I took out of my pocket a sheet of paper and my fountain pen. But then I remembered how my studies had been concentrated on geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar, and I told the little chap, a little crossly too, that I did not know how to draw. He answered me, That doesn't matter. Draw me a sheep. But I'd never drawn a sheep, so I drew for him one of the two pictures I had drawn so often. It was that of the boa constrictor from the outside, and I was astonished to hear the little fellow greet it with, No, 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 I do not want an elephant inside a boa constrictor. A boa constrictor is a very dangerous creature, and an elephant is very cumbersome. Where I live, everything is very small. What I need is a sheep. Draw me a sheep. So then I made a drawing. He looked at it carefully, and then he said, No, this sheep is already very sickly. Make me another. So I made another drawing. My friend smiled gently and indulgently. You see yourself, he said. That is not a sheep. That is a ram. It has horns. So then I did my drawing over once more, but it was rejected too, like all the others. This one's too old. I want a sheep that will live a long time. By this time my patience was exhausted, because I was in a hurry to start taking my engine apart. So I tossed off this drawing, and I threw out an explanation with it. This is only his box. The sheep you asked for is inside. I was very surprised to see a light break over the face of my young judge. That is exactly the way I wanted it. Do you think this sheep will have to have a great deal of grass? Why? Well, because where I live, everything is very small. Oh, there will surely be enough grass for him, I said. It is a, a very small sheep that I've given you. He bent his head over the drawing. Not so small that, oh, look, he's gone to sleep. And that is how I made the acquaintance of the little prince. <laughs>
And next time, you see, these chapters are not long, so we'll do a couple uh, per per stream. Uh, there's a lot of chapters in this book, and a few are quite long, but but most of them are relatively short. So next time up on uh, Wednesday night, we'll do chapter three and likely four. Three is called The Narrator Learns More About Where the Little Prince Came From. That'll be fun. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we're out of here. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, you can go to rumble.com slash I'm not wearing pants, and, uh, or I am. Anyway, just search I'm not wearing pants on rumble.com. You can subscribe there to our channel and watch the visual portion of the show. Um, other than that, we thank you for joining. I will see you again on Wednesday evening. Uh, until then, I'm Jay Sheldon not wearing pants. Good night.